Thank you, worship team, for leading us and singing those, thank you, Jeff, those wonderful truths. Luke chapter 15 is not our text today, but I want to point this out. Jesus says that there's great joy in heaven every time a sinner repents. Amen? Amen. Wasn't it absolutely beautiful to see four of our young people be baptized this morning? Just praise the Lord for that. Great rejoicing in heaven today. Let's go to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12 is our passage for this morning. Let's read this together to start. If you're visiting in our service today, we are, uh, this is I think message number 24 in a verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation. Uh, Someone asked me, who's a guest in our service this morning, said, boy, you're preaching Revelation during this time right now in our country and in our in our world and and uh, I, I pointed out and I know I've said it to you before too that I knew I was gonna preach the book of Revelation verse by verse starting in March of this last year I knew that uh, last fall uh, so it's not anything I just want to make sure everybody understands that I didn't choose to preach Revelation in response to anything going on in the world today if there is any connection there it's due to the Holy Spirit certainly not due to me and and my planning of that. So Revelation chapter 12 is where we are. This is an absolutely fascinating passage, church, and I will say it's probably one of the most misunderstood passages in the book of Revelation. So let's dig into it together, and we will start just by reading it this morning. The the scripture will be on the screen. It's from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Uh, also, you can find it on the Version app along with my sermon notes if you care to, to go that route. But uh, Revelation chapter 12 and starting with verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns And on his head's seven diadems, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Sorry, I'm a little behind here. Let's try to get catch up. All right, there we go. She gave birth to a a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death." 
Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of God given to us, his church for whom Christ died and is alive forevermore. Amen? I want to walk you through this verse by verse. Going to have to do that quickly. There's a lot here. And we'll make some points of application along the way today as opposed to waiting to the end of the message and applying it at that point. But here are some questions that I think might help you to begin to understand where we're going with this, and more importantly, what this Scripture passage in Revelation chapter 12 is teaching us. Because like I said a minute ago, this to me is one of those passages in Revelation that people often misunderstand what's happening here. So let's go back to verse 1, and let's take a look at it together. But here are some questions for you to think about as we go. How would heaven tell the Christmas story? How would heaven tell the stories of our faith, the stories of the crucifixion, of the resurrection, of the ascension of Jesus Christ? How would heaven teach church history? You see, this is what I believe we find here in Revelation chapter 12. There is a lot of symbolism here in Revelation 12 for us to interpret together. Bible scholars that I have read agree, though, that the woman in this verse is not an actual person, but a symbol of the people of God. As, as I've looked at many commentaries, many very respected conservative Bible scholars that we would hold to as being men and women who have studied God's Word throughout their life, they, they, they certainly agree that this is symbolic. This is not an actual woman that, that John sees here, but this is a symbol for God's people. We'll unpack that as we go. All of the images here, though, in verse 1 that you see on the screen... Uh, ideas like being clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, a crown of 12 stars, 12 stars are used in the Old Testament to describe the majesty of God. These are all Old Testament images that point to the majesty of God. And here they show the dominion that God has given to his people Israel first, and then to the church. So looking at verse 2, as we move on in the text, looking at verse 2, we see that the woman, symbolic for the people of God, was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. 
This is the Christmas story from the perspective of heaven, church. This is a reference to the birth of Jesus Christ. Now salvation has been brought to earth. This is the incarnation. This is the coming Messiah. Again, we should understand that the woman here in verse 2 is the people of God. The woman in this verse, in verse 2, is not Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus. The woman is believing Israel, those in Israel who are faithfully waiting for their Messiah. And the birth pains and the agony that she cries out in are those in ancient Israel before the coming of Christ who were looking ahead and waiting for Christ to come, for their Messiah to come. This is how we should understand what's happening here. The woman is symbolic of the people of God. Israel first, later as we move through the chapter, that will change to the church. And they're crying out for their Messiah to come. In verse 3, in verse 3, we see the antagonist of the story is introduced. The villain. If there was theme music happening right now, that music would change. It would go from more majestic music to maybe something in a minor key as the antagonist of the story is introduced here in verse 3. And another sign, John says, as he's watching this unfold, another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. What are diadems? Crowns. And so these seven diadems or crowns represent the dragon's desire to be worshipped as the king of kings. Now, that's going to be important in a minute, so hang on to that thought. What does the dragon do? Let's look at verse 4 and see his action in this story. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, the people of God, awaiting their Messiah, with the imagery that we've already talked about, who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. We've already learned in our study of Revelation over the last 23 messages, we've learned that stars are symbolic of angels. The dragon compels one-third of the angels in heaven to follow him. They are cast out of heaven, and they become what we refer to as fallen angels or demons. Now, we're going to walk through that in just a minute. I'm going to Let's just put a, hit the pause button on that idea for a second because it's going to become really important when we make it to verse 7. So just kind of hold that thought for a second. So continuing on with verse 5, let's see what happens next. She gave birth to a male child. The Messiah comes. Jesus is born. The anointed one comes to Israel. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. We see that imagery throughout the Old Testament, the coming of the Messiah who will be in the line of David and will reign forever. But look, what does the rest of the verse say? But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. I believe that this is the incarnation, church, at a glance. This is the incarnation of our Lord in one verse, as tightly packed as you possibly could put it. 
In one verse, we see the life of Jesus on earth from his birth through his resurrection and his ascension back to heaven. Do we understand? Do we understand the power of the incarnation? We should as Christians. I mean, for goodness sake, our, our main holidays revolve around it. Christmas, Easter, Good Friday, right? We should understand the power of the incarnation. I think the Apostle Paul highlights it so well in his letter to the Philippians where he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross, mind-blowing for a Jew, mind-blowing that God would become man and then as a man would humiliate himself, would humble himself to the point of dying on a tree. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, the Old Testament says. But Jesus, the eternal Son of God, gives up the glory of heaven for a time, comes to the earth, he's born as a baby, he grows up, he loves people, he serves people, he heals people, and then he dies on the cross for you and me, church. Paul goes on to write here, he says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Here's the resurrection, here's the ascension. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Amen. So the, the dragon, if we return back to Revelation verse 5, the dragon tries to devour Jesus. But through the cross... Through the cross, Jesus is victorious, and he is exalted by the Father. Jesus crushes the head of the serpent. When is the first time the gospel is preached in the Bible, church? It is not in the New Testament. It is in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Look it up, if you would. Genesis 3, 15. In theology, we call it the Proto-Evangelium. Theologians need big words for simple ideas. It makes them feel smart. That's all I can say. We call it the Proto-Evangelium. It means first gospel. It means it's the first time the gospel's preached because after Adam and Eve fall into sin, after they eat the apple, <laughs> guys, don't eat from this one tree. What do they do? They eat from that one tree. After the fall into sin, and God comes and he brings judgment on Adam and on Eve and on the serpent. And here's what he says to the serpent in chapter 3, verse 15. Look, from the seed of the woman, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. It's the first time the gospel is preached, and here we see the fulfillment of it. With the cross, Jesus is victorious and he crushes the head of the serpent, church. The war is over. The war is over, church. Jesus won. 
So frustrated by his inability to defeat Jesus, the dragon goes after what is most precious to him. And what is most precious to our Lord? Us. Believe it or not, it's taken me a lot of my life to accept that as truth, that Christ could consider us, his church, to be most precious to him, to be his summum bonum, to be his highest good, that, that he would cherish us so much, that he would cherish me so much in my sin, in my sin, the greatest sinner in this room, I'm convinced of it, is standing right up here on this platform, and that he would cherish me so much that he would go to the cross and he would die for me. And when Satan, that punk, realizes that he's defeated by Christ, he goes after what is most important to Jesus, and that's his church. Look at verse 6 with me as we continue on in this. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she, was, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And I'm sticking to my promise. I'm not getting into timelines. I'm not getting into dates and charts and how everything's going to work out. So if you want information on 1,260 days, you're going to have to study it yourself. To me, I'm much more concerned about the events that happen, not when they're going to happen, how they're going to happen, and what world leaders represent who. I have no time for that. If you do, God bless you. We'll talk about this, though, when we get to verse 13 in a few minutes. Coming to verse 7, I believe that verses 7 through 9 give us more detail to the battle alluded to in verse 4. So here's what I want you to see. And, and if you're writing your Bible, maybe make a note of this. Verses 7 through 9, and maybe you want to draw a box around verses 7 through 9 and do a line back to verse 4. Because I think what we see in verses 7 through 9 elaborate on what happens in verse 4. Why are a third of the angels cast out, cast out of heaven? Why are a third of the angels cast out of heaven? We learn from these verses that there was quite a battle that happened, quite a battle in the spiritual realm where one-third of the angels rebelled against God. Let me, let me show you this, verses 7 through 9. Let's look at this together. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, there's a few important things for us to see in these verses, and I don't want you to miss them, so I'm just going to point them out very quickly to you from these three verses. First of all, and this, I believe, is all in your note sheet, but please note that John removes any mystery concerning the identity of the dragon. There's a lot of mystery in the book of Revelation, and I've tried to be honest with you about that. I've tried to point that out. Hey, it's okay if you believe this, or it's okay if you believe this, and, and I'm going to be saying something like that here in just a minute too, right? But, but here, John removes the mystery. The curtain's pulled back. The dragon equals Satan. That's who he's talking about here in chapter 12. Second of all, please understand that verses 7 through 9 is backstory. I believe that this is backstory. This is the fall of Satan and his demons. I believe this is the event that happens before Adam and Eve. 
I believe that this is the story of the original fall of Satan and his demons. I believe that John is telling us about the event that is the reason that there is a snake, a serpent in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. So this is primordial. This is prehistorical. This is before our creation began. It fits really nice with what we see here in Isaiah's prophecy of the first half of that passage on the screen right now. Isaiah chapter 14, if you want to look it up. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, where it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Now, I need to be completely honest with you here, church. There's a lot of discrepancy among Bible scholars about whether or not this passage applies to the fall of Satan and the demons before our history began, or if it's talking about something else. And there's also debate among Bible scholars if Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9 apply to the fall of Satan. That's what I believe, though, and so it's what I'm giving to you. I believe that Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, and also this passage in Isaiah 14, that they both reference this fall of Satan and the demons before our history began. I think I can defend my interpretation using a couple of other scriptures as well. So I'll take a second just to do that. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That certainly fits well with what we see in Isaiah and in Revelation 12. And the Apostle Paul instructs Timothy concerning elders in the church, and he says this, the elder, the potential elder, must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. To me, when you look at these four passages together, it paints a picture that seems to work together. That there was an angel once who decided being an archangel or being one of the chief of God's creation wasn't good enough and he wanted to be God. He desired to have that place, not of creation, but creator. And when that happened, there was a great battle, and he led one-third of the angelic realm into rebellion, and they were kicked out of heaven. I think these passages complement each other very nicely. If you see it differently, that's okay, but that's my belief. Third, I want you to see this. God and Satan are not equals. God and Satan are not equals. They are not on the same playing field. Christianity, our faith, does not teach dualism. Dualism is taught in many other world religions. Uh, maybe the most obvious one I can point out to you would be Taoism and the, the symbol of yin and yang. And, and how they're both kind of equal, that is not what the Christian faith teaches. Not by a long shot. Satan is a creation. He's not the creator. He is no match for God. 
And just like the rest of creation, church, if God ever stopped sustaining his existence for even a second, Satan would disappear. God holds his existence. He's no match for God. The battle that Satan fights here is with the archangel Michael. Don't miss that. We see in these verses, though, that he's no match for Michael either. Michael quickly defeats him. Let's talk about Michael just for a second. We know a little bit about him from the Scriptures. First of all, we know that his Hebrew name means who is like our God. And so if you're here and you have the name Mike or Michael, that's the entomology of your name, who is like our God. We, we know that in the book of Jude, that he, from the book of Jude, that he's an archangel. And we also know that from the book of Daniel, and I love this idea, that he's the chief prince in heaven, in the angelic realm, who protects the people of God from their enemies. Again, first Israel, and now us. What am I trying to say? The archangel Michael has our back. And he's one tough dude. That's pretty cool. The defeat here of Michael over Satan, and when he casts Satan's crew, the one-third of the angels, who are now the demons, out of heaven foreshadows his ultimate defeat at the cross of Jesus. And this is the focus of the worship that happens next in our story. So let's continue on. This is the focus of the worship, the cross itself. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And listen to what is said next from this heavenly worship. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved their lives not even unto death. What, 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 what is this heavenly worship declaring? It's basically declaring that Jesus conquered Satan and that these martyrs understood that and they were willing to sacrifice everything for that truth. How has victory been achieved? The blood of the Lamb. The final defeat of Satan took place on the cross. The war is indeed over, church. What should be our response? What should be our response to this great victory that Christ has won for us? The beginning of verse 12 makes it crystal clear. We should have the same response that the angels in heaven have. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens. Rejoice, and you who dwell in them. Coming now to verse 13, I believe that verses 13 through 7, 17, just like verses 7 through 9, remember I had you draw the box, 7 and 9 explain verse 4, same thing here. Verses 13 through 17 give us more detail to the events described in verse 6. So again, if you're writing in your Bible, put a box around verses 13 through 17, tie it back to verse 6. Satan turns his fury on the people of God here. First Israel, and then the church. Let's look at verse 13 together, and we'll see what happens. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, who's the woman symbolic for the people of God, who had given birth to the male child. The Greek verb here, I just want to point this out, the Greek verb here is edioxin, 
And this verb can be appropriately translated both pursued and persecuted. So when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he's cast out of heaven, he pursued the woman or persecuted the woman, the people of God, who had given birth to the male child. This is Satan's mission now, to destroy the people of God, first Israel and now the church. This is the mission of our enemy, and we'll see this more as we look at the rest of the passage. Look at verse 14. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle. I love this imagery. This is a great story. This would be a tremendous movie. I don't know if anybody could pull it off, but it would be amazing. The, the, the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The point is this. God has given his people eagle's wings. God is protecting us, church. There is a remnant of the people of God who are staying true to the word of God, and God will always have a remnant, and he's protecting us. We'll see this more at the end, so I don't want to say too much about that now. Let's talk about eagle's wings, because it's not the first time it appears in Scripture. Exodus 19.4, we see you yourselves have seen, this is God talking, that I did what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you, the Israelites, God's people, on eagle's wings, and brought you to myself. Please note, But the people of God here are not passive in this verse. They are given eagle's wings so that they can fly. We see this even more clearly in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. I think this is important. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. May this encourage us, church, in these dark days that we live in that God has given us the wings of an eagle so that we might fly. What, what I'm not hearing here is, oh, woe is me. The world is so horrible. What am I going to do? That's not what I'm seeing. What I'm seeing is the exact opposite. I'm seeing the living, all-powerful God who can squish that punk Satan like the bug cockroach he is has given us, his church, the wings of an eagle so that we can fly. Amen? Amen? That is what the church should be doing today, flying in these dark days. Now, returning to Revelation chapter 12, we see with verse 15 that Satan has not given up on his pursuit. Not at all. That's coming later as we move towards the end of this book. Several weeks from now, we'll see this. But, but look at chapter 12, verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. What's the water that flows out of the mouth of Satan? I need to talk to you a little bit more, and it gives me no joy to do this, but I need to talk to you a little more about Satan. C.S. Lewis said at the beginning of Screwtape Letters, he said there's two dangers for Christians. One is that we would think too much of Satan and his demons. And the other danger is that we wouldn't think of him at all. And so we need to know who he is. We need to understand his strategies, but we shouldn't have an excessive interest in him by any means. And and so 
the topic of Satan will be a rare thing in my preaching teaching here, but it is something that from time to time we do need to talk about. So let's, let's talk about this for a minute. What is this water that flows from the mouth of Satan? There's a few theories here presented by Bible scholars, but I believe that this represents lies and deception. The reason I think that is that this is how that snake attacked Eve in the garden. And it's how he continues to attack us today. Jesus said once uh, during his earthly ministry to a group of Jewish authorities, he said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he's talking about Satan, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. We learn a lot about our enemy from what the Lord says here. Brothers and sisters, here's what I want to say to you. Don't believe his lies. Don't believe the lies of Satan. Our culture, our society is saturated with his deception. It has always been. These are not the musings of an old man saying that today... Our culture is saturated with lies and deception. Listen, there never were any good old days. I'm sorry. I think that's selective memory. If, the, if there are some of you out there who think, oh, the good old days, I don't know what you're talking about. And, and let me tell you why. The good old days weren't so good for a lot of people. The good old days were not so good for minorities. The good old days were not so good for children who were being abused in their homes. We are much more clued into that today than we were 30, 40, 50 years ago. I could tell you stories. Uh, the, good old day, the good old days were not so good for those who were being sexually offended. We are much more clued into that today than we were 30, 40, 50 years ago. The good old days were not so good. And neither are today, today's days either. There are no good old days. Satan has been whispering in ears since the Garden of Eden. We have this tendency to idealize the past, but we forget that in every decade, church, in every century, that snake has been effective at deceiving people in the world. Amen? And he's been effective at deceiving people in the church. Every generation since Adam and Eve has been steeped in sin. Have a great day. We'll see you next week. <laughs> no! Cheer up! Amen. Pastor Terry, don't be such a downer. What did I just say a minute ago? Jesus is victorious. <laughs> Peter said, you, the church, are already crushing the serpent under your feet. We've been given the wings of an eagle. So let's not leave here today on a downer note because the Lord always has a remnant. Faithful people who walk in the light, who live by the unchanging and perfect truth of all 66 books of this Bible. He always has a remnant, church. He had a remnant 
back in these days. He had a remnant in 1000 AD. He had a remnant in 1500 AD. He had a remnant in 1950. He has a remnant today in 2020. Amen? He always has a remnant. Faithful people who choose to live their lives by the word of God. How can you know? I got to wrap up. So let me pull this towards an end here. How can you know that you're being deceived? In order to know that you're being deceived, you have to know the truth. You have to know the truth to be able to discern what a lie is. How can you spot a counterfeit? Do you know how people are trained to spot counterfeit money? They study carefully actual money. You have to know the real thing to be able to spot the counterfeit when it comes. You have to know it when you see it. Brothers and sisters, the stakes are high today, and they've always been high in every generation. And so my challenge to us, Fellowship Baptist Church, and anyone listening to us online right now, my challenge is let's be faithful. Let's be fully committed to the Word of God. This is what we see at the end of the passage. I should finish the passage with you. Verses 16 and 17. This is what we see here. A faithful church. Look at what happens. But the earth came to help to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Every generation, every generation of the church, every generation of the people of God, that snake Satan is after us, and his desire is to destroy us. But what, what, what do we see written here? On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is the faithful remnant. This chapter, friends, to me, clearly illustrates the promise that Jesus made during his earthly ministry to build a church that even hell itself could not overcome. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. That is the faithful remnant that we see here. But understand, church, we are in a war. I'll close with these comments from Grant Osborne. Grant Osborne, Bible scholar, says, it is impossible to read Revelation chapter 12 and not be convinced of the reality of spiritual warfare. Many of us might like to, <laughs> listen to this, many of us might like to be Switzerland. When we talk about Satan and the demons, some of us just think, you know, I'm going to fly under the radar. I'm going to try not to be noticed by the demonic realm because I don't, I don't really want undue attention drawn to me. And, and that's what Grant Osborne says. Many of us might like to be Switzerland and remain neutral in this war as if we could ignore Satan and be certain that he would thereby ignore us. But Satan is real. And so is his hatred for every one of us. To be neutral is to lose. Dr. Osborne goes on to write, he says, the path to victory, listen, church, the path to victory over our adversary is quite clear. We must absolutely depend on Christ, drawing strength from the Spirit and obeying God in all we do. When we do that, we cannot lose. 
The forces of evil will distract us with earthly trials and persecution. But what does he say at the end? This is beautiful. But so long as our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we will overcome. Amen? Brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. And he is leading us to victory. Would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes? Worship team, come on up. Let's pray as they come. Lord Jesus, may we abide in you. Lord, may we always seek to walk in the light. Lord Jesus, help us to spot the lies of the enemy in our life. Help us, Lord Jesus, to live in the truth. Help us to walk in the light. Lord Jesus, our eyes are fixed on you this morning. Our eyes are fixed on you. But God, it's easy. It's easy to have our eyes fixed on you right now in this gathering. Lord, may our eyes be fixed on you tomorrow morning. May our eyes be fixed on you throughout this next week. As we go out now to live the mission that you've called us to, as we engage with maybe a lot of people in our lives that are hard to love, may our eyes be fixed on you, Jesus. As we work jobs, maybe for some of us, jobs that we're not crazy about, or at least there are parts of our jobs that are tough right now. Lord Jesus, may our eyes be fixed on you. Help us to discern when the enemy is trying to deceive us and to draw us off course. Help us, Jesus, to know the truth. Jesus, our eyes are fixed on you. Thank you, mighty Savior, that by your cross we will overcome. We will overcome because you are victorious.